0: On this week's 51%, Sandra Day O'Connor became the first female Supreme Court justice in 1981. But before that, there was a long history of female candidates waiting in the wings. We discuss the honors and limits of being shortlisted with the authors of Shortlisted, Women in the Shadows of the Supreme Court.
1: Always the bridesmaid, never the bride.
0: We also take a look at President Biden's shortlist following his pledge to nominate the first black woman to the Supreme Court. Coming up on 51%. I was standing
2: around. One of those girls I have seen in a movie The whole world was a movie back then I had my sunglasses on I wanted to be seen without seeing Shiloh and Lita I wasn't really in it I didn't really get it
0: You're listening to 51%, a WAMC production dedicated to women's issues and experiences. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jessie King. With Associate Justice Stephen Breyer set to retire, President Biden has said he will tap his nominee to the U.S. Supreme Court by the end of February. The Democrat has also said his pick will be the first black woman to fill the role, more than 40 years after the nomination of Sandra Day O'Connor, the first female Supreme Court justice in 1981. When we talk about women in the Supreme Court, we tend to start with O'Connor. But as our guest today will tell us, there's actually a long untold history of women being considered, but ultimately passed over for the nation's highest court. Renee Nick Jefferson and Hannah Brenner Johnson are the authors of Shortlisted, Women in the Shadows of the Supreme Court, out now on New York University Press. Jefferson is an internationally recognized expert on professional responsibility and legal ethics, as well as a professor of law at the University of Houston, while Johnson is vice dean of academic affairs and a professor at California Western School of Law in San Diego. Both have done extensive research on gender equality in the legal profession, Their latest title, in addition to sharing the stories of the so-called shortlisted sisters, examines the challenges women and minorities face when seeking positions of power, be it in the courts, in the boardroom, or on the playing field. Johnson says the inspiration for the book came more than a decade ago.
1: It was about the time that President Obama was faced with two vacancies on the court, and he, um, as we now know, nominated two women, um, now Justices uh, Sotomayor and Kagan, we were particularly struck at that time by the way the media was covering their nominations, the scrutiny that was being focused on things unrelated to their qualifications. I mean, these are two extraordinarily qualified women. You can't not be to, to make it onto the Supreme Court. But the mainstream media was focusing on their appearance, um, on their sexuality on the fact that they didn't have a husband. And we were perplexed um, and frustrated and and frankly offended um, by some of the coverage. And because we're academics, we have a lot of privilege um, that comes along with that role. And so we set about the business of studying the way that the media portrays nominees to the US Supreme Court through a gendered lens. And it was in the midst of that research study um, during which we and a team of research assistants read about 4,000 articles that uh, covered uh, Supreme Court nominations. That um, we found an article that really struck our attention and we, we flagged it. Um, it was an article written in the 1970s that appeared in the New York Times. And it talked about President Nixon um, was faced with vacancy on the Supreme Court and he had shortlisted two women, um, a woman named uh, Sylvia Bacon and then a judge from California named Mildred Lilly. Now the article was, um, well, it reminded us of what we were observing in 2009 and 2010 in terms of the coverage. Um, the article noted that Judge Lily looked great in a bathing suit um, and that it was fortunate that she had no children. Now we were stunned and shocked of course by that sexism in the coverage. But even more importantly, and more relevant to your question, um, we realized we had never heard of this Judge Lilly. We didn't know that Nixon had in fact placed um, two women on a shortlist for the Supreme Court in the 1970s. And so this article and our discovery um, of this fact really led us to ask the research question that informed the entire book, and that is you know, what other women may have also been shortlisted. Um, We think of gender in the Supreme Court um, around Sandra Day O'Connor. She of course was the first woman um, who was put on the court um, by President Reagan in the early eighties. But we wondered if there was another um, thread through that ran through this storyline. And in fact, um, learned that there were nine women um, who were shortlisted up until the point at which um, Sandra Day O'Connor became the first.
0: And so who are these nine women?
1: Okay. So
3: you've got to go back to the 1930s uh, and start with Florence Allen. She was shortlisted by FDR. And actually we have seen the memo in his archives from 1937. This is the year that he was considering adding more justices to the Supreme Court because he was unhappy with the court continuing to strike down his New Deal legislation. Ultimately that did not happen. And she remained on that shortlist. Although he did make her the first female federal court of appeals judge on the sixth circuit. And prior to that, she was a judge on the Ohio Supreme court. Then LBJ was next. He shortlisted. Oh, yeah, she was the first female law professor at Harvard law school and the first female professor at the university of Chicago law school. Then you have the the two women we've already talked about, or that Hannah already mentioned Sylvia Bacon, a judge in Washington, D.C., and Mildred Lilly, a judge from California, both who found themselves on Nixon's shortlist. Then President Ford shortlists his Secretary of um, Housing and Urban Development, Carla Hills. Well, and he also considers Cornelia Kennedy a judge on the Sixth Circuit. And then we jump forward to President Reagan's shortlist. In his shortlist for the Supreme Court, of course, he had campaigned on the promise to put a woman on the court. And so his shortlist included several women, including uh, Judge Kennedy from the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, and Sandra Day O'Connor, of course, and uh, Joan Dempsey Klein, who was a judge from California, and Amalia Kearse, who is the only African-American female to have been shortlisted up to O'Connor. She was on the Second Circuit Court of Appeals at the time. That history has particular relevance right now as we are on the cusp of having, finally, 40 years later, our first Black female Supreme Court justice. And then who did I forget, Hannah? There was one more. Susie Sharp. Oh, yeah. How could I forget Susie Sharp? And Susie Sharp, who was the first female justice on the North Carolina Supreme Court, the first female Chief Justice elected to any state Supreme Court. Uh, And I don't know how I could possibly have forgotten her because of all the women, her archives were definitely the most fun. They were filled not just with all of her opinions and drafts and the things she did as a judge, but all kinds of juicy details from her makeup routine and her exercise routine, recipe ideas. I'm not sure how I forgot her. But uh, those are your nine. So we didn't mean for it to be enough to seat a full Supreme Court. But as it turns out, uh, it could have we could have had nine female justices already on the Supreme Court.
0: Is there anything that you think would be, I guess, different today if any of these women had been selected?
1: I mean, it's a really interesting thought experiment to contemplate Florence Allen being appointed to the court by President Hoover or FDR and what that would have meant not just to the opinions that came out of the Supreme Court you know, over time, but also how that would have opened doors for subsequent appointments. And not just subsequent appointments on the Supreme Court, but just to positions of leadership and power generally. We know that there's a great power in seeing representations of people who look like us um, in those very, very powerful positions. We talk in the book about uh, Madeline Albright, who was asked at one point if she ever contemplated being um, Secretary of State, and, you know, she said, well, um, that, that thought had never really, you know, crossed my mind because I never saw somebody in that role wearing a skirt, and, you know, for many of us, you know, myself included, um, you know, walking through the, the hallways of my law school, You know, the portraits of the professors who um, were there for ages, you know, were all white men. Um, I didn't see very many representations of people who looked like me. Of course, I made it into the doors of the law school. But I think that if if somebody like Alan or one of the early women had been elevated to the Supreme Court, I think it would have expedited our path forward um, and perhaps gotten us a bit closer to issues of, of equity and equality. in in a bit more expedient fashion. And if I could just add to that, it isn't just about seeing women
3: in these roles, although to be sure that's really important, but it's also just having the workplace ready for them. One of the things that we were horrified and maybe a little amused, but mostly horrified to discover is that these women in our study in some ways couldn't be more different, but they had some common experiences. For example, uh, when they got to courts, there were no bathrooms for them, so they had to either borrow a male colleague's bathroom. In fact, with Florence Allen going to the Sixth Circuit, they had to get federal funding to have appropriate facilities for her. Uh, the women were routinely told by employers, "We'd love to hire you, but we don't. We don't have facilities for women here." And if women had been more present on the Supreme Court earlier on, not only would we have been inspired to see ourselves in them. But frankly, the the workplaces, public life would have been open to women more quickly.
0: I think that's a good point. It makes me think, like, are there areas where you still see room for improvement today?
3: I think that the analogy of the physical spaces not being appropriate or amenable to women, we can extrapolate from that a little bit and think about the structure of the workplace, not just in terms of locations of bathrooms, but what a work day looks like and where one has to do their work. And especially in COVID, everyone has been thinking about work-life balance and issues, for example, of of childcare. And that was definitely another theme we saw. So some of the women in our study never had children, others did, but one theme that was common from all of them was the lack of childcare support and very difficult decisions they had to make in their professional lives. I think that those are decisions that women grapple with still today and fall to be sure on on all caregivers, but because women are disproportionately more likely to be the caregivers, they're more impacted.
1: Well, and that reminds me of one of the structural changes that one of the women in our study made, um, Soya Menshikov, who Renee mentioned a few moments ago. Um, She was one of the first female law professors in the country. She taught at Harvard. She was at the University of Chicago. She was the first permanent female dean at the University of Miami. And she was also the first uh, female president of the AALS, the American Association of Law Schools, which is a national affinity organization for law professors, um, an organization that is still very much alive and um, and thriving today. And when um, Menshikov was the president of AALS, she noticed that there were few female law professors who would attend the annual meeting, which was scheduled at that time in between the Christmas and the new year holiday. And for women who were juggling life as a mother, uh, as a spouse, as a professional, it was really difficult for them to get away to this important meeting. So she moved the date of the meeting. She made it after the holidays, which seems like a really simple thing. But in fact, once she did that, women, Law professors were able to attend. You know, perhaps um, it's not readily apparent to your listeners the importance of attendance at a meeting like this. It's a place where scholars come together and share their research. It's where connections are built. It's where you know relationships develop that might lead to other professional opportunities. Um, you know, new jobs, speaking opportunities, uh, even awards. Um, Renee and I ourselves were beneficiaries of uh, Menschikov's work to change that meeting date. We routinely um, attend this meeting. Our paper that I uh, that came out of our media study that I referenced earlier was the recipient of an award um, at that very conference. And so, you know, sometimes the structural changes like don't require massive efforts to, uh, to make them, but the impact can be quite significant.
0: You also talk in the book about the use of shortlists in general and at times the limits or even harms of shortlists. Can you tell me a little more about that? Well, to
3: be sure, in order to be selected for a position of leadership and power, whether it's the Supreme Court or, you know, another shortlist that's been in the media lately uh, relates to uh, head coaches for football, you got to be on the shortlist to be selected. But what we found in our own study, and I think this is a fair critique of shortlists beyond the Supreme Court, is that sometimes that very list can be used by an organization to claim that they care about diversity because they have a diverse slate on the shortlist List, but then it actually is used to perpetuate the status quo when the individual selected is not the diverse individual, and so we we push back on that in our book. We show how the use of, of short lists perhaps kept women off the Supreme Court longer than it should, and um, both Nixon in that example. So we told you that's where the book's origins were, we, we've listened to his Oval Office tapes. So he did put two women on his Supreme Court shortlist, but behind closed doors, he said he would never put a woman on the Supreme Court. In fact, he said he didn't even think women should be allowed to vote, but he wanted their votes. And so he used the placement of women on his shortlist to be able to go and politically say, yes, women, you know, we at least considered you this time and, and maybe your time will come. In fact, I mean, he was so blatant that he actually delivered a speech to a women's group after he appointed Justices Rehnquist and Powell from his short list of both white men, of course. And we've we've seen that same kind of dynamic play out. So we are mindful that you've got to be on the short list to be selected. But our book focuses on ways that sometimes that effort for reform can actually undermine the very objective it's meant to achieve.
0: So I guess, how do we avoid that? You mentioned what's going on right now with the NFL even. Is there a better way to enforce things like the Rooney rule, or is it more of a matter of changing the culture?
1: Well, I mean, I think part of what we're doing—we're just—we're shedding light on the shortlist, right? We are um, illuminating this practice um, that, you know, many of the women in our study were perpetually shortlisted, always the bridesmaid, never the bride. Um, there was an old Listerine ad, apparently, that sort of bore that sentiment, and and Sharp was shortlisted so many times that that was sort of what she, how she referred to it this sort of chronic shortlisting—and I I think part of how we can um, address it. Or, or fix it or, or keep it from happening in, in this negative sort of way is to tell the story, to make it evident. But there are also some a little bit more concrete things that can be done. For example, Biden has
3: a shortlist of all Black women. So we know that a Black woman will come off the shortlist. That is not necessarily what we recommend in the book. Although, of course, we appreciate the fact that Biden is finally making good on something that is long deserved. Uh, But another example that comes from the book. So I mentioned Amalia Kearse. She was the only Black female in our study that was shortlisted, considered for the court before O'Connor. She would go on to not only appear on another shortlist of Reagan. Reagan had multiple vacancies and could have given us more than one woman on the court, but he checked that box and was ready to move on. She was later considered for the court by George H.W. Bush and also by Bill Clinton for the very seat that Justice Breyer now holds. So it's sort of interesting in his retirement it will finally go to a black woman. But to your question, how did she end up on the shortlist at all? And how did she end up on the Second Circuit Federal Court of Appeals? This is a concrete example of the kind of reform that we are interested in. And it's structural reform in the decision-making process. When President Carter took office, he decided to change the way federal judges were appointed to the court. And of course, he never had a vacancy on the US Supreme Court. He would have given us our first female justice, I'm sure. But he transformed the lower federal courts. He put more women on lower federal courts than all presidents before him. And the way he did it, was by taking that decision process out of the sort of behind the scenes, who do you know? And he actually created a commission through executive order. It had uh, 16 different panels or groups across the country. And the, the panels were diverse in makeup, women, men, minorities. They were tasked with interviewing and vetting candidates for the federal judiciary who were also diverse, women, men, minorities. And so a structural reform like that is another example of how a shortlist can go from being really just sort of lip service to (laughs) diversity and actually having meaningful, real change.
0: Let's talk about President Biden's shortlist then. Um, Who are some of the women that Biden has on his shortlist and what does this mean for the court?
3: I'll take the second part of that question uh, first, and then Hannah may have some thoughts as well. And I think what this means for the US Supreme Court, we aren't going to see a major ideological shift. It's still going to remain sort of 6-3 with this conservative majority. But it is absolutely transformational in terms of the court's history and its legacy. It will increase the institutional legitimacy of the Supreme Court as it moves ever closer to reflecting the public that it serves. For the first time ever, we will have two black justices. We will have four female justices. And to the point Hannah was making earlier about it, it matters who we see holding these these roles. Young girls young black girls across the country are going to be inspired to become lawyers to become judges and to reach for the highest pinnacle and whatever career goal they might possibly have. Now, as for the names that we're seeing, I'm, I could start with the most obvious and then Hannah might want to jump in with some names as well but the one that I think everyone is speculating is most likely is Ketanji Brown-Jackson. And that's because she was confirmed by this very same Senate just a year ago for the seat she currently holds on the DC Circuit Court of Appeals. Prior to that, she was a federal judge in a district court. She's also served as a federal public defender and, I think this is kind of a nice piece for Breyer's legacy. She clerked for Justice Breyer. And so he would be retiring from a seat that he would be giving to one of his former clerks. I think she's probably the most likely pick. Um, She also received bipartisan support when she was confirmed by the Senate. So um, in a world where everything seems like the parties can never agree to be able to say that, I think also um, probably has her very
1: close to the top of the list. Yeah, I don't disagree um, with Renee's analysis. Um, And and I think it's worth highlighting that today the process is so incredibly partisan. Um, We've talked about Amalia Kearse, who is one of the shortlisted women um, that we write about in the book. She was um, shortlisted by presidents across partisan lines. Um, We don't see that today. Um, It would be unthinkable really to think about our former president um, and President Biden actually nominating um, or shortlisting even uh, some of the same women. Other judges, of course, are on the list, um, but I would be remiss if I didn't mention Melissa Murray, who is a law professor at NYU um, and importantly wrote the foreword to the paperback edition of Shortlisted that is coming out next week. So um, we feel really, really lucky uh, to have her writing start the, uh, the new edition of the book. Um, But the list is the list is long. Um, It is filled with incredibly qualified women. Um, It's going to be a difficult pick um, for sure. It will, of course, include political calculations, um, as all shortlisted and and nominees have in the past. Um, But I guess we will know by the end of this month is what Biden tells us.
0: Well, as you prepare for your paperback edition to come out, what's the biggest thing you hope readers take away from your book?
3: There's a couple things on the one hand, the book is an untold history. So I want readers to know that the history is so much more than, I mean, not to take away from Sandra Day O'Connor being the first female justice on the Supreme Court, but the history is so much more rich and history tells us a lot about what's happening now. And it helps put into context just how long overdue the placement of a Black female justice is on the court. But the other thing I hope readers take away is that we can learn a lot from the lives of these women that apply to everyone as they're trying to navigate their own career trajectory, their own balance of personal and public and family life, professional life. And so it's it's very much a book about the history of the Supreme Court that's been untold, but it's also very much a book about these women and their incredible lives. And I won't speak for Hannah on this, but I will say learning from these women, they felt like real mentors to me and uh, helped me navigate my my own professional pursuits. And so I, I hope they do the same for readers.
0: Renee Kanaki Jefferson and Hannah Brenner-Johnson are the authors of Shortlisted, Women in the Shadows of the Supreme Court. You can find it now at all major booksellers. It'll be out in paperback with a new foreword from Melissa Murray next month. For more, check out shortlistedbook.com. Thank you both so much for taking the time to speak with me.
1: It was a pleasure to meet you, and thanks so much for having us on.
0: As Jefferson noted, Biden's nomination, while historic, would not tip the current conservative majority on the Supreme Court. Following a December hearing on Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, the court appears poised to overturn or at least weaken Roe v. Wade in the coming months. That's either a good or bad thing, depending on where you stand in the debate, and states across the country are preparing accordingly. This November, residents of Vermont will decide whether the state constitution should be changed to assure personal reproductive freedom, Proposition 5, or the Reproductive Liberty Amendment, was passed by the Vermont House on Tuesday, February 8th, checking the last box in the amendment process before moving the issue to voters. WAMC's Pat Bradley brings us more. The amendment process began in the
4: last biennium and had to pass in two consecutive bienniums before being put before voters. The first legislative vote occurred on May 7, 2019, and passed on a 106-38 vote. The Vermont House voted by a similar margin Tuesday, sending the amendment to the voters. House members could not change or amend the proposal. Human Services Committee Chair Ann Pugh, a Democrat from South Burlington, provided a review of Proposition 5 and why it was introduced. We can no longer rely on federal courts to uphold the protection for fundamental reproductive rights based on the federal Constitution. With this reproductive amendment, we have the opportunity to enshrine these rights in the Vermont Constitution. The proposal for article 22 of the constitution is one sentence that an individual's right to personal reproductive autonomy is central to the liberty and dignity to determine one's own life course and shall not be denied or infringed unless justified by a compelling state interest achieved by the least restrictive means. There was passionate debate on both sides. Jericho Democrat George Till, a physician, said there is a lot of misinformation and misunderstanding regarding the amendment.
2: It changes nothing for women seeking a termination in Vermont. It changes nothing for medical personnel involved, nor the medical personnel who wish not to be involved in terminations. Madam Speaker, abortion restrictions are political tools designed to make abortion harder to access. They are not designed to increase safety nor to improve the medical standards of care. The results of legislatures restricting access to reproductive rights is an overall increase in maternal mortality. That is why we need this constitutional amendment.
4: Northfield Republican Ann Donahue said individuals already control their reproductive choices before conception. Although abortion is never directly referenced in the language, we know that in current legislative intent, it's the core impetus for this proposal. When a wanted pregnancy ends in a miscarriage, we say, she lost her baby. No one says she lost her embryo. Or her fetus, because it was wanted, and that defines its humanity as a baby. Individuals inherently do control their reproductive decisions. But once that biological reproduction has already occurred, because conception has occurred, that choice has been made. You can watch the House debate on Proposition 5 at WAMC.org. The amendment would be the first of its kind in the nation. I'm Pepperatley, WAMC News.
0: You've been listening to 51%. 51% is a national production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. It's produced by me, Jesse King. Our executive producer is Dr. Alan Shartok, and our theme is Lolita by the Albany-based artist Girl Blue. A big thanks to Renee Kanaki-Jefferson, Hannah Brenner-Johnson, and Pat Bradley for contributing to this week's episode. To learn more about our guests or just the show in general, check us out at wamcpodcasts.org. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at 51% Radio. Let us know how we're doing or if you have a story you'd like to share as well. Until next week, I'm Jesse King for 51%. I was every
2: single girl. I was nobody else. I was so sure of myself. I was 15 and a half He was a hollow laugh And I lost my cool Somewhere along the way At night down the hallway I had to learn how to look away I lost my cool